Well, we are once again in the book of Romans. We're in that section of practical application, the life-changing relevance of the gospel. We've seen from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that the various mercies of God are to lead us to giving our bodies as a living sacrifice and seeing our minds to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And if we do this, then the first particular, Romans 12 and verse 3, will be a humility that is seen in the context of the local church. Next, what will be seen is a self-denying love uh, to the church, then a self-denying love to our enemies, and then in this section we see a submission to the civil uh, government. We saw in our background study last week on Romans 13 that God has used various civil governments down through history. In our Old Testament survey, we saw the need of a civil government. Cain was not executed. A mark was put on him. But then the situation devolved so that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually and violence filled the land. And God says after the flood, uh, there is to be a, a civil government for capital punishment. We see the mention of civil government in the forming of the nations after the Tower of Babel. We saw the beginnings of civil government for protection from foreign powers as Lot is carried away and Abraham, along with his allies, go to fight. We saw further Moses opposing the Egyptian government by saying repeatedly, let my people go. We saw evil abounding without a king in the book of Judges. We saw Israel, Israel as a nation, told to settle into Babylon and to seek the peace of the city in which they are. And then we saw Daniel looking behind the scenes and seeing God who was bringing in and taking down the various governments in the New Testament, we saw Jesus recognizing Rome's right to rule in Palestine. You, pull out of your pocket your denarius that you are using to buy things with, and you there in your pocket have the token that shows where there is to be honor that is given to Caesar. Paul recognized the Roman governor uh, Paul urged the churches to pray for the officials, and Peter recognized Rome's authority. Three spheres of this limited government, each with hypotasso, fallen to rank under the authority in the family, in the church, in the civil government, and then God is absolute over each of these spheres of limited human government, over every limited human authority and actually over every human. If I could preach this morning on all seven verses of this paragraph, if you would allow me to go on for three hours, this would be my outline. If those working with your children in the nursery would agree, then we could cover all of this. But what we're going to cover is the reality 
of submission to a civil government and then start with Roman numeral two, the reasons, and cover only because of the divine institution of the civil government, but there is more that is to come. What is going on in Rome in 57 AD when Romans was written? Well, Nero was proclaimed the emperor in 54 at the age of 17. His rule has commonly been associated with impulsiveness and tyranny, but for the most part, he was liked by the general populace and only really disliked by the aristocracy. Early in his reign, he was heavily advised, but he slowly became more independent. In AD 59, encouraged by his mistress, Papia, Nero murdered his mother, Agrippina, his leading advisor, Seneca, was discharged and forced to commit suicide after the great fire of Rome occurred in July AD 64. It was rumored that Nero had ordered the fire to clear space for a new palace. Whether or not he started it, he did use it for an expansion project, and he did blame the Christians for it, and thousands were killed because of it. So what does Romans 13 uh, answer what the believer does? Does Romans 13 answer what the believer does when a Hitler appears on the stage? What are we to do when the government that is to protect our citizens from murderers and foreign invaders becomes the great murderer and the great foreign invader. Well, our passage is not directed to answer that as such. I, for sake of interest, I wanted to show you this early seal for the United States designed by Benjamin Franklin, who is not a believer in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet his screen, his seal here, shows uh, to us Pharaoh over on the right side coming into the Red Sea, Moses and the children of Israel already across the Red Sea, and the pillar of fire uh, there above symbolizing God's uh, presence, and his deduction is rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Now, I would suggest that that is a little bit of a stretch from simply seeing that at God's divine revelation to Moses, he is repeatedly saying there to Pharaoh, we need to be away, we need to go into the wilderness. But nonetheless, it is striking to see how even for an unbeliever in a bygone era, how their awareness of Scripture is such that they would come to make that seal, or that Ben would come to make that seal. Leon Morris, Paul owed a good deal to the protection of the Romans that they, that had afforded him, but he was not unaware of the fact that the state could be very unjust. No Christian could, for the atoning death of Jesus lay at the very heart of the faith, and that death had been brought about on the human level by evil and unjust people. 
Though even here the early Christians saw God at work in the deeds of evil men, the man who had often been in prisons in the Roman Empire and had frequently been flogged was not unaware that the authorities can be unjust. For that matter, he knew that he himself had been unjust when he was one of the Jewish authorities that persecuted the church. But here Paul is writing about the state's essential nature, about what it should be, and in some measure at least is. Rulers may misuse authority God has given them, but Paul's point is that does not alter the fact that it was God who gave the authority to them. People are often tempted to evade their civic responsibilities, not only in the first century, Paul reminds them of the significance of those responsibilities. Order is important, and the state embodies order. We should be clear that Paul is writing about the existing state, not some ideal state that he hoped would appear. Every state has its faults, and the first century Rome had many but it still had to be treated as the ruling authority and as such as the servant of God. Well, with that, you may come to your handout sheet if you care to use it and notice with me Roman numeral uh, number one. Roman numeral number one, the reality of submission, the reality of submission, a limited submission to the civil government. Notice with me from Romans 13.1, the recipients of the command, the recipients of the command. Here it is, let every person be subject. It is literally, let every soul. And it's Paul as a Hebrew that his Hebrew way of thinking is coming out in his Greek writing. And they would say, let every soul, where we would say, let everybody, but it has the same meaning. The soul stands for all of us. Even when we say everybody, uh, that stands for the whole of your person. So here it is that Paul is referring to a universal duty. He is not saying now, for those of you who are believers, this is what you need to do. They are included. But he is writing broadly and saying that this is a duty that God brings to us as people. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. It is your duty. It matters in the sense that a believer has a higher sense of responsibility to recognize God's authority. Secondly, B, the focus. The focus of the command, and we're still dealing with the first part of verse 1. The focus of the command is on governing authorities. Let every person, every soul be subject to the governing authorities. We find that the governing authorities are simply pointing to those who exercise authority. It's speaking of those who are at a higher level, those who are at a higher position. And he is speaking 
of governing officials who are at a higher level. Now, I, I say something about this because some simply looking at the word authority uh, and then they take us to passages where the term authority speaks of spiritual forces in darkness in heavenly places, and they say, well, uh, Paul is saying, and, and it's just, no, just leave that. That is not in the passage. Don't bring that in. But here it's, uh, Peter is a parallel. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. There's our term. Those who are at a higher level, those who are at a higher position. The emperor is at the highest level there in the first century under God or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Paul is using this term in a context where the Roman emperor has tremendous authority and tremendous power to preserve life and to take it. Thirdly, see the essence of the command. Let every soul, let them do what? Let them be subject. And here we meet with our term for submit. It is hypo in the Greek that means under, and it is tasso in the Greek that means to place. Put them together, and it was used early on of a military term where a commander would say, I want this ship here, and I want that ship there, and I want this ship to be coming around this way. It was used uh, for generals on the field, not just uh, for Navy commanders. I want this group of soldiers here. I want these here. I want these waiting in reserve. And I want these coming around on the right flank. Hypotasso. I'm telling you where your place is, soldier. Now get to your position. Fall into rank. Come in under where I place you. So this word has the sense of the one who puts someone into position, but it's also used of individuals where there is an appeal made to us to put ourselves in the right place, to recognize our place, where a child recognizes that like Jesus, I need to fall into rank to my dad and mom. I need to find my place under their authority. As a churchman, I need to find my place under the authority that God has established in the church. And when it comes to the civil government, everybody else around me is talking so nastily about the government I need to find my place as a Christian. Here's the appeal that is made to us. Let them be subject. It's a command that is given to us. Let every person be subject. It's not so much that the government is going to crush us. It is that we are going to find our God-given position, a voluntary subjection and that's how the term 
is used here. Now, I want to go quickly through the passage, Romans 13 and verse 1, and show you how this same word is used. Let every person be subject, hupotasso. Then it is in the latter part of verse 1, for those that exist, those governing powers, uh, have been instituted by God. And this is a term uh, that is built on that place word. And it's saying that God is instituted. God has placed them. It's like God is the military commander, and he says, I want this authority here, and I want this authority here in the church, and I want this authority here in the family. And I have placed this particular Roman government. And you'll say, well, didn't you want the nation of Israel to be a nation in Israel? Well, yes, according to the Old Testament. And yet, the Roman emperor who reached out and invaded other countries and took them over, Paul is saying that God has placed Caesar in his position. He has instituted him. God has placed him. And then the next verse. Therefore, verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority. Here is our word for tasso, being placed, arranged, and let me give you a very technical Greek word. You all will know this one. Anti. Anti. Against. Well, this is the word here. There is someone who is willingly going to find his place under And then there's someone else that says, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm not. I am anti being in my position. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to subject to this, be subject to this one. And then down in verse 5, we find our tasso word again, now with the hupo with it. They must, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So notice with me, this whole section of Romans 13, 1 through 7, drips with God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in placing and calling us to find our position under those various placings, What God allows, what God ordains concerning the powers that presently exist. It's not so much how he got into power, whether or not it was right or wrong. But he's established and now in power. And we are to recognize that and recognize that God is behind this. Now this is why we spent last Lord's Day morning looking at the three spheres, children submitting to their parents, believers submitting to pastors in the church, citizens submitting to their civil governors. And now this term for submit, we need to understand that it is broader than obey. A child does need to obey his father and mother. But when you are obeying, 
that speaks more to specific commands. But this term for submit speaks of a broader relationship. Listen to Professor Murray. The word subjection, which the apostle uses, involves not only an outward obedience, which one may give grudgingly, take the trash out. You can take the trash out with a scowl on your face. You did it, but you may not have really been submitting from the heart as you did it. Subjection involves an inward and willing recognition of one's place of submission to the magistrate. Take the trash out. Yes, I will. And yes, I will with the recognition that you, dad and mom, are the God-appointed authority over me. I embrace that. It's God's world. And if God wants to put me under this dad and mom, then I am good with that. I embrace it from the heart. So a child is to obey the specific commands of his or her parents, but there is this broader attitude. And I wonder what that means for us as citizens. Well, we do need to pay our taxes. We do need to obey those commands. But that which God is expecting us is to, from the heart, embrace that God wants order in society. And God says, in order to have that order, I want you, 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 and you, and you to be under this one. I want these children to be under, I want this wife to respect her husband. And that respect is just another side of the coin uh, where on the other side of the coin it is submit. Our responsibility of submission to the civil, civil government speaks of our ongoing relationship to them. They are over me. And so in Romans 13 and verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God they are deacons of God they've got a job to do and in order to help them to fulfill their job given to them as deacons of God then you need to pay your taxes on to verse 7 Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You see that, that, that theme here of a wife submitting to dad and to her husband? There is a respect that goes with that. There is with the child an obedience, yes, and there is that respect honoring father and mother. And so something of that is seen as well of the civil government. Now, I invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 is another passage where Paul is going to talk about the civil government. Titus 3, beginning at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers. It's something that I've talked about before, Titus. Something you've talked about before. 
but it's something that's going to need to be gone over again and perhaps again. Remind them to be submissive, to fall into rank to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Notice with me in this passage, there it is, the submission is the key duty. Then in verse 1, there is that halfway through the verse, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. And I'm going to make an appeal based on this passage to that there should be a measure of civility in our speech even when it comes to the political realm. And if you argue and even if you successfully demonstrated that this whole paragraph is not limited to the civil government and our response to them, I believe the flow of thought is there. But even if you say that Paul is, first of all, in the first part of verse 1, say, this is what you need to do to the civil government, and now he's turned his back on that, and he's saying, in all other areas of life, you need to be obedient. <laughs> obedient to who? Well, to the civil government. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. Uh, uh, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Even if these commands or these fruits are not directly linked to our relationship to the civil government, these are still fruits that are supposed to be in my life. Obedience, I suggest, is one of the fruits that, that flow out of falling into rank but along with it, not speaking evil, not quarreling with, being gentle. Now, what of you and me, as we live in a polarized political climate, when a president likens his opponent in the election to come as Hitler, and then the former president demeans the president as crooked Joe and the worst president who ever lived in the history of the United States. Even if you believe that attack ads are necessary at this particular point in our society, we don't have careful thinking society, and so the only way that you're going to scare, score points is to come up with some demeaning title for your opponent or you're to portray a Hitler-like scenario that's going to come if this man would be president again. 
Even if you believe that attack ads are necessary, my job this morning is to lay out that we need to be careful about our speech. Very clearly, you and I as believers are to be conformed to Jesus and not conformed to the world. To the world. And there ought to be no question in your mind that we can respect President Biden, we can respect former President Trump, but honesty calls us to say they are both in the realm of the world. And you and your friend and your political enemy can argue about who is more worldly and whose worldliness is worse. But there's a worldliness there. But there is a danger. There is a danger for us as Christians to be influenced by the climate of our age. And isn't that the directive that we're to avoid? I'm to be renewed. I'm not to allow my mind to be conformed to the way of the world. And the way of the world in the United States right now is a very heightened, a very polarized political climate. And I'm not talking about who's the right person to vote for. I'm talking about who is our pattern when it comes to molding ourselves and conforming ourselves to someone around us. As believers, our moral pattern is not to be a flawed man, whether or not the flawed man is in this political party or that political party. Our pattern is what? We all know. The great goal of the Christian life is that we would be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Show me, as well, the example of the Apostle Paul. Jesus preeminently. Paul in a secondary way because he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But show me where Paul lambasts Felix or Festus, or Caesar. Show me where he lambasts them with a caustic disrespect. So be careful. Be careful that your emotional attachment to your political hero will not subconsciously impact your speech in a way that Jesus would not have it to be impacted. And there's a danger of thinking. Well, my political hero is caustic, mean-spirited, and abusive in demeanor, and therefore it's okay for me to be like that. And just, just think of the Old Testament. You got an idol? The danger is you're going to become like your idol. You got a hero? Be careful that you are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and not to some political figure that we plainly all recognize or overhear in the world. 
Think of the direction of the book of Proverbs where it talks about we're not to hang out with the angry man lest we learn their, their ways. You can't just unconsciously let all of this come over. I seek to keep myself informed and watch enough of this and watch enough over here, but there comes a point where I say, okay, that's enough, I got, I got it. I don't want this stuff washing over me all of the time. It's just too sad at another level. Roman numeral two, there's the reality. The reality, now the reasons. The reasons for submission to the civil government. There are three reasons. We'll look at only one today. Why do I need to submit to and in some way honor a pagan king or a pagan president? First of all, A, because of the divine institution of the civil government, latter part of or the middle part of verse 1, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. First of all, that middle phrase, no authority except from God, is the negative statement. The negative comes first. And then he says the same thing, but in a positive way. And those that, ha that have been instituted, those that are, have been instituted by God. You can't find one that has not come from God, and these that are from that are existing are due to the sovereignty of God. You cannot find a civil government that sneaked into its place without God knowing it, without God being involved in it. Daniel 2, in his prayer, after God gives him the dream, God gives him the interpretation of the dream. He changes, speaking of God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God raises them up. These governments that are, are from God. Think of the, the vision that is given to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, there's the, the head of gold. Then it moves into the Medo-Persian kingdom. Then it moves into the Greeks. Then it moves into the, to the Romans with, uh, with their iron. And God tells to Nebuchadnezzar who the great world-ruling powers are going to be for the next several centuries. Now, in order for God to prophesy that, in order for him to predict that, it's going to indicate this that we're seeing in Romans 13, that these governments are from him. Daniel to Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when the handwriting of the wall has been uh, seen and they panic and they get the old man, uh, Daniel the prophet, to come in. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty and because of the greatness that he gave him, that God gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled before him. But concerning your grandfather... When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, 
look on this great Babylon that I have built, then God comes along and he cuts down the tree of Nebuchadnezzar and he gives him the mind of a cow. And he did so until he, Nebuchadnezzar, knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Order in the state. And the men that enforce the order, they come from God. God is behind it. That's something of the negative statement. Let's look a little more. God is the universal designer of the governments. God is the decorator who comes in and says, oh, I want this vase here, and I want this painting here. Design in the sense of a placer. God has instituted. God has placed it here. I don't want it over here. I want it here. I want it at this time period. This does not mean that a human government that God places is going to be there ad infinitum. No, there's only one government that's going to last, and which one is that? Nebuchadnezzar, you saw these four great kingdoms, and then there is this latter kingdom that is made without hands, and it's the kingdom that is going to go on forever, and we know that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The Babylonian, Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman kingdoms did not last. I mean, we're glad when we can watch the Sunday school video and see the archaeological evidence of ancient Babylon and ancient this and so on. But guess what? It's under a pile of sand. They don't last. First Chronicles 28, verse 4, we've got David. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel. He chose Judah, that's my tribe, and of all the members of Judah's tribe, he told, chose my dad's family, and of my dad's family, with all my brothers, he chose me. And of all my sons, and I've got many sons, God has chosen Solomon to be on the throne. Proverbs 8, verse 15. By me, kings reign. Verse 16. By me, princes rule. Jeremiah 27, Zedekiah is the king of Israel. And Jeremiah is told, now, there are these envoys that have come to King Zedekiah. There are these envoys that have come from the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon. Now, I have a message that you're to give your king, Zedekiah, and he's to give, you're to give to these envoys that they'll take it back home with them. What's the message? God speaks. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give to it whomever it seems right to me. 
Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Listen to this. His time's coming. Sometimes we use that phrase. His time is coming. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Wouldn't dare saying that to Nebuchadnezzar or his son or his grandson to their face. But there's coming a time. Think of Jesus speaking to Pilate. Pilate first of all says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God is behind all of the powers that rule as civil governments in the world. Doesn't mean this passage is not really addressing the matter of when a Christian can rebel, when a Christian can say, well, this, this part of the government is more following. Let's just take in the message that is relevant to us for most of us as Christians throughout our lives. Secondly, B, practical lessons. God is sovereign over all kinds of human governments. The Lutheran, evangelical Lutheran Lenski says, no particular form of authority is specified, imperial, monarchical, oligarchical, republican, democratic. Whether this authority is exercised in a noble or in an oppressive manner, whether it was attained in a legitimate or an illegitimate way, neither limits nor qualifies the Christian's position. Romans 13 is not saying this is the particular form of government that is right. But it's saying whatever government is, whatever one God has brought into being is the one that God has brought into being for you to live under. This civil government has its source of authority, not in man, but in God. It's a lesson for us as Americans. In the passage, God is going to refer to the civil magistrate as God's deacon, God's servant, and God's minister, kind of aligned with God. Our preamble to the United States Constitution says, we the people, that's where we start. We, the people of the United States, a little bit later, do ordain and establish this Constitution. And I'm very glad that we have this Constitution. And they do ordain, we do ordain this Constitution. But in political philosophy, the phrase, the consent of the governed, refers to the idea that a government's legitimacy and moral right to use state power is justified and lawful only when consented to by the people. Did the Roman Caesar, who seized all that Mediterranean territory, 
Did he come in there and the generals come in and say, would you fill out this questionnaire? I would like to know if you are willing to consent to me being your governor. No, I, I don't think so. John Price, writing on this topic in our exposition of the Confession of Faith, says the office of the civil magistrate does not exist by human invention, as if men experimented throughout human history and decided this world would be best, uh, the, uh, the best social arrangement to live under, the civil government. Neither does the authority of the magistrate come from the will of the majority or the consent of the governed, as stated in the American Declaration of Independence. The office and authority of the civil magistrate exists because God ordained it. The Roman emperors surely did not derive their authority from the consent of the governed. Now let me hasten to add, I am thrilled with our Constitution. I love the fact that we have a Bill of Rights. I love the fact that we have a First Amendment that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. But what's the point? Well, the point is, if you and I were living in another country where there was not a constitution, we would be bound by Romans 13 to fall into rank under the authority that God has raised for us. I am not saying, I am not saying that there will not be a place in our American history where some citizens call upon a branch or all the branches of the government, come back here and be under the Constitution. That may come. But I'm saying the job for you and me today is to recognize the government that God has put over us. Daniel 2, he removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 5, 21, until Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And then on to Belshazzar. And you his son, you his grandson. Son is used in the sense of descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And you, his grandson, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You, Belshazzar, need to fall into rank. Please know, I am not saying that someone like Hitler, who became the murderer of his people, and the foreign invader of other nations, I am not saying on the basis of Romans 13 that he should be kept in power or kept alive. 
But I am saying the God of the Bible is at work in our world. And the God of the Bible needs to be recognized for his sovereignty that reaches far and wide. Secondly, by way of lesson, God is more interested in our advancing King Jesus' kingdom than advancing liberty in the perfect human government. You or I or Jefferson and Madison may come up with the perfect government, but at once it's got some sinners mixed in with it. Sorry, your perfection just left. So many times, Paul doesn't even seem to be that interested in getting cleared and getting vindicated. He seems more interested in preaching the gospel to those who happen to be at his court hearing. And that's a challenging example for us. But he does it again in the Titus 3 passage. Remind them to be submissive. And then you need to be making sure that you're not quarreling and, and making sure that you've got all humility. That's, that's behind. Uh, courteous to all. A perfect courtesy toward all people. And then he promotes this. He goes, remember, you've not always had it together. You, you get it together, you see God, now you want to get arrogant and come down on these other people with their moral faults. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. But when God, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. We're to be submissive to our rulers and we are to promote a kind interaction with others reflecting, reflecting on in humility what I used to be like. And as we close this morning, I take you where Paul takes you in that passage. He saved us, not because of works done by, righteous, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you know anything of this kind of regeneration change by God the Holy Spirit? And if you don't, you need to understand what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. You must be born again. No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he or she is born of the Spirit. If you're not yet a believer, then please understand, you cannot please God on your own. But God saves on the basis of his mercy. And he speaks of how you get there by justification, where God declares us to be. Well, how do I get God to declare me to be righteous before him? Well, Romans helps us out there. It's when we believe, when we have faith, we are justified. 
When we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we take all of our sin and lay it off here and then God gives to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, when we believe that we are sinners, when we believe there is a perfect righteousness for any and all who will come and ask for it, that's how you get to be right with God. Well, my friends, may we see the pervasive sovereignty of God. May we see that God is voting for order. May we see that there may be children who have an ungodly parent. They still have to honor him. They don't obey him. We obey God rather than man. In certain instances, we need not obey. And so for us as Christians. But there is to be something in our hearts where we, because we're submitting to God, we're submitting to those that God has put in power and it influences our tongues so that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and not a political hero. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as you tell us that after we've gotten all the doctrine of the early chapters of Romans, now we need to come to practical lessons. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us talking to us how we need to interact with one another in the church, how we need to interact in love even with our enemies. And we will have enemies as Christians. And thank you, Father, for teaching us that we need to submit to the government that you have placed over us. Give us great wisdom. Help us to recognize that you don't say everything that needs to be said here in Romans 13, but you do say a tremendous amount to us in Romans 13. We bow under your word, and we ask you to give us wisdom and insight as we seek to walk in your path. And we pray, Lord, for any who are outside of Christ. May they see it's not within them to present anything that is pleasing to God from what they have done, what they are in this life. They are sinners. 